Amen. So how do we draw near to God? Well, that's the focus of our text this morning. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're new here, uh, we've been going through this letter of Paul. And our theme, <clears throat> excuse me, is strength in weakness. And our theme this morning is strength in weakness through repentance. Repentance is one of the initial ways we draw near to God. Perhaps you've heard the name uh, Billy Graham. I think that's a safe bet. One of the greatest evangelists, probably the most well-known Christian in the last century. I wonder if you've heard of the name Buckner Fanning. Buckner Fanning has actually been placed in the same category as Billy Graham when it comes to evangelization and preaching the gospel to the lost. The difference was that Buckner Fanning decided that God had been calling him to actually pastor in a church long term and not preach to large stadiums anymore. But Buckner Fanning was so famous that in 1957, his face was actually on the cover of Newsweek magazine. But Buckner took this small church in San Antonio and it grew to tens of thousands. When Buckner Fanning was a child, he and his brother, against the house rules, would play baseball in the living room. His mother and father told them repeatedly not to do that. Well, sure enough, one day Buckner threw a pitch. His brother swung and missed, and the ball shattered a keepsake vase that had been in the family for generations. His mother heard the crash and saw the treasured keepsake in a thousand pieces. Buckner's younger brother quickly ran out the house into the front yard, leaving Buckner to face his mom there alone. And he said, Mom, it's all my fault. You told us not to play ball in the house, and I did. And Buckner's mom just stood there for a moment still, looked at the vase, looked at Buckner, and then gave this knowing, loving, kind, forgiving smile that communicated, all will be well. But then Buckner noticed a tear streaming down his mother's face. And he realized the enormity of what he'd done. He walked outside and his brother came up and could tell that Buckner was visibly shaken. And his brother said, what happened? What did she do to you? And Buckner said, I'm not sure what she did to me, but I'll tell you one thing. I will never, ever play baseball in that house again. What led to the change of heart? It wasn't fear of being terrorized by his mom or dad although I'm sure he was disciplined. It wasn't shame. It wasn't guilt. It wasn't self-condemnation. 
What was it? It was seeing the tear stream down his mother's cheek, knowing that he had hurt her so deeply and yet was met with grace and forgiveness. And that is exactly what is to motivate repentance in our own hearts. How do we draw near to God as we just sang? Through repentance and fresh faith. Let me again set the context of where we are in 2 Corinthians 7. As I've said before, 2 Corinthians is the second letter of Paul in the New Testament to the Corinthians. But there were actually four letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. We find out in 1 Corinthians 5 that he wrote a letter to Corinth before 1 Corinthians to answer some questions. And then we find out that in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote a third letter. Both letters, of course, the first one and the third one are lost. And we have what God wants us to have in the Bible, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But this third letter that that Paul uh, lost, or that was lost, that Paul wrote, before 2 Corinthians, is called the tearful letter or the painful letter. Paul wrote it because there was a divisive person in the congregation at Corinth. This divisive person was undermining Paul's authority, which Paul wasn't that upset about, but undermining Paul's authority meant that he was undermining the gospel that Paul preached. And that, Paul was very very concerned about. So he wrote this tearful, painful letter. He wrote this letter with a tear streaming down his cheek, just like Buckner Fanning's mom. And he wondered how the Corinthians were going to respond. He was so anxious to meet with Titus, who delivered the letter, to hear about their response. They were supposed to meet in Troas in Asia, But Titus didn't show up. Paul became so anxious and fearful and even depressed that he left a fruitful ministry in Taroaz and went to Macedonia looking for Titus. Thankfully, Titus shows up in Philippi and reveals to Paul that his letter broke them or God used the letter to break them. And they repented. And they dealt with sin in the church. And they dealt with their own hearts. And as Paul recounts to us what happened to the Corinthians, he reminds us what repentance needs to look like in our own lives as well. So let's all stand in our reverence for God's Word. And follow along with me as I read 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 13. This is God's Word. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. So again, he left Troas in Asia and went to Macedonia, but he had no rest because he was looking for Titus. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now remember who this is. This is Paul the Apostle, and yet he's confessing anxieties and fears the same way that we wrestle with anxiety and fears. You ought to feel you're in good company. Paul wasn't this super saint that had it all together. 
He was just like us. He simply had the calling from God to be an apostle. But he wrestled with sin and brokenness too. Then look at verse 6. But God who comforts the downcast. The ESV is being, shall we say, a little kind to Paul. The Greek literally says, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us. I don't know whether the ESV translators thought that depression uh, was too strong of a word to attribute to the Apostle Paul. But for those of you who wrestle with depression, how encouraging to learn that Paul himself at times wrestled with depression. And God wasn't there saying, can you not get it together? What is it with you? Don't you know you're a Christian? Where's your joy? Well, look at how God responded. But God who comforts the downcast, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, that is the divisive person that was demeaning Paul, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, that is, Paul himself, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, an authoritative word. This is God's word, and he gave it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to experience a repentance that leads to a deeper experience of salvation. Let's pray. Father, I'm going to ask right now that you would give all of us a soft, tender, receptive, surrendered repentant heart. That, Lord, we would open ourselves up to you because you love us so much. And, Father, enable us where needed to perceive the tear in your eye that will lead us to godly grief that produces a repentance leading to salvation without regret. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat.
So four elements of repentance that flow from this text that lead to a deeper experience of salvation. First of all, repent increasingly. Look at verse 10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Now, when we read the word salvation, what we normally think of is initial conversion. And you need to realize that very often when the Bible uses the term salvation, it's not merely talking about initial conversion. As a matter of fact, when the Bible uses the term salvation, it usually means three things all at the same time. Initial conversion, which is salvation from the penalty of sin, which is God's wrath. Then progressive sanctification, which is salvation progressively from the power of sin in our lives. And then thirdly and finally, when Jesus comes to bring us home and he sets up the new heavens and the new earth, it will be salvation from the presence of sin forever. So there's three aspects of salvation. Initial conversion, saved from the penalty of sin. Progressive sanctification, saved from the power of sin in our lives. And then lastly, at the return of Christ, salvation from the presence of sin completely. So Paul is saying that as we repent increasingly, I'm now talking about the middle meaning of salvation, we experience the salvation that is ours in Christ in increasing measure. We grow in grace. We grow in godliness. Now, I used to think that the more someone matured in Christ, the less they would be repenting. Have you ever thought that? Maybe you have. Yeah, I used to think that the more you matured in Christ, the more you grew in the gospel, the less you'd be sinning. Because that's what it means to grow, right? And therefore, the less you'd be repenting. Well, the Bible actually says the exact opposite is the case. Now, it's not because you're sinning more. It's because God begins to reveal progressively more and more of our sin the more we grow in Christ. For an illustration, your, your sin, my sin, is an iceberg. Okay, It's there. It's always been there. But we only know the tip of the iceberg when it comes to our sin. And when we're converted, we know very little of our sin because we know so very little of God and so very little of God's Word. But the more we learn of who God is and His perfect holiness, well, then the more of the iceberg begins to be revealed. And we see under the surface there's more sin than we ever dreamed. And then look at verse 8. Paul says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter. See, that's one of the ways God calls us to repent increasingly is as we get to know him through God's word. Paul's letter, of course, he's talking about the letter that has been lost. But Paul wrote lots of other letters that we have in the Bible. The Bible is the means through which 
God reveals the iceberg. And as God reveals more of the iceberg, which is our sin, we learn to repent increasingly. But that's not a bad thing, because the more we're repenting increasingly, the more we're experiencing the wonder of grace, and the more we're we're being transformed. So we repent increasingly. Secondly, we repent deeply. Look at verse 8. Paul says, I made you grieve with my letter. As a matter of fact, in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11, Paul mentions grief four times in four verses. Repentance isn't something that's done at a merely rational level. It's not enough simply to know and agree with God's word that he's revealing the iceberg and I'm becoming more aware of my sin the more I know God's word and the more I know God's character. No, there's actually a grief to repentance. Think back to Buckner Fanning and breaking his mom's vase and coming to the realization that though she loved him, that act broke her heart because that was incredibly special to her. Not only that, his mom was also grieved as he grew up to learn that Buckner and all of us need to come to grips with the enormity of the consequences of our sin. Sin is never in isolation. All of our sin hurts other people. There's no sin in isolation. Even our private sins end up hurting other people in certain ways. And so God wants us to repent deeply from the whole heart, not just from the level of the rational thought, but the whole heart means from our thoughts, from our emotions, from the source of our desires and our choices. Repenting deeply means repenting from a whole heart. In verse 9, he goes on to say that the Corinthians were grieved into into repenting. They experienced a heaviness of heart that actually led to tears. Now listen, we can't manufacture tears. That's... And and you can't always measure repentance by tears, can you? Uh, Esau, we learn in Hebrews 12, when when Jacob stole the birthright. Esau, and it was because of Esau's disobedience and unbelief, Esau wept and wept and wept and wept, but it didn't change the reality of his sin. So it's not merely tears, but it's not merely words either. The more we look at our sin in light of it hurting other people and ourselves and God's heart, the more we'll repent deeply. I've told you before about the relationship between William Wilberforce and John Newton. Uh, William Wilberforce was a member of Parliament uh, in Great Britain, and he fought successfully eventually to uh, outlaw the slave trade for Great Britain. His mentor in the faith was John Newton. John Newton, ironically, actually was the captain of a slave ship. 
And when Wilberforce was going to Parliament to outlaw slavery or attempt to outlaw slavery, he went to John Newton, his mentor, and said, would you please write down your testimony of all that you did and all that you saw and all that you participated in? And John Newton, who, by the way, wrote Amazing Grace, said, no, I can't. It it is just too painful. There are 20,000 ghosts that haunt me. At the end of his life, uh, John Newton was completely blind, and, uh, and William Wilberforce was seeing God really move in Parliament, and they were going to win the day. God was going to win the day, and that, uh, that awful stench of human history called slavery was going to be outlawed. And Wilberforce went to Newton to tell him how things were going. And Newton was there talking to a confessor who was writing down every word of Newton's experience. And this is what he said to Wilberforce. He says, you must use it. Names, ship records, ports, people, everything I remember is in here. Inhumane treatment, torture of thousands, thousands more ripped from families and loved ones. He says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Then he goes on to weep on Wilberforce's shoulder, and he says these words, I could not weep until I wrote my confession. I once was blind, but now I see. I wrote that once, didn't I? But now, he concluded, It's true. You see, there's a sense in which we won't really repent deeply until we take time to repent reflectively. Now, I'm treading on dangerous ground here because some of us, all we do is sit around and examine our navels. All we do is see our sin. All we do is obsess over the sin under the water table. So I want to say this to you. Please realize not everyone's like you. As a matter of fact, most in the church don't spend enough time reflecting on the depth of our sin. I've even seen it in Bible studies or discipleship groups. Somebody confesses something and somebody's real quick to slap Jesus on it. You know, sometimes we need to just let people sit in the enormity of the consequence of their sin. We'll remind them of Jesus. And I'm not saying two days. I'm not not saying like we need to do Christian penance. I'm not saying that you need to feel bad enough long enough till you think you can afford to feel good enough. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is we tend to let each other off the hook too quickly before grief really has time to set in. What are you repenting of these days? What are you repenting of in a shallow, rational fashion? How might God deepen repentance in your life if you reflect in his presence or go talk to another person 
You know, it says scripturally, it's very clear. We are to confess our sins to one another that we may experience healing. And that leads to the third point this morning, and that is that we are to repent hopefully. Here's the other answer for those of you who sit around examining your navel all the time. Repentance isn't meant to be a kick in the gut or a kick in the teeth. It's to... It's to come out of grief that God provides as we recognize the enormity of the weight of the consequences of our sin. But repentance is a window to joy. Repentance is a door to healing. We talked, or we saw on the video this morning, the the hope for mental health and mental health for abused women. You know, there's lots of talk during COVID about the problem with uh, mental and emotional struggles right now. And, you know, we do need counselors for sure. But, but let me tell you something. If you're a Christian, do not go to a non-Christian counselor. I'm sorry. You need to hear the hope we have in Christ, and that's it. Now, that's not to say we can't go to psychiatrists that, that are, you know, because that's not quite as subjective, although you need to be careful there as well. But we need to get counsel from people who recognize that our brokenness can ultimately only be healed by the hope of the gospel. You know, when I see non-Christians in my counseling office, I know there's only so much hope I can give them. Unless they choose to put their hope and trust in Christ, they're not going to have hope. And secular counselors want to get people to think they can have hope when they don't have Christ to offer them. Now, there are things we can do. There are certain exercises people can engage in. But to really experience healing and hope, only Jesus can do that. Look at verse 8. For I see that the letter grieved you, but only for a little while. See, we're not supposed to sit there and grovel over our sinfulness and brokenness. Again, this is all balanced because some of us need not to grovel, but we need to wrestle more with the grief of our sin. Look at verse 9. Godly grief results in suffering no loss. Folks, repentance is not going to harm you. It's actually going to heal you. It's not repenting that's going to harm you. This is where secular counselors are hurting people. Telling people, I'm okay, you're okay. That's just some ridiculous notion from the past that you're doing something wrong. That's going to kill people. But people repenting is going to lead to health and wholeness mentally, emotionally, psychologically. Repenting of our sin and hoping in the gospel. Verse 10, godly grief leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. Repentance is what protects you from spiritual harm. Versely, conversely, look at verse 10 at the end. Worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is remorse. Worldly grief is regret. Worldly grief is, I don't want to feel this way. Worldly grief is, I don't like the consequences of my actions. Worldly grief is, I feel bad about myself. Godly grief is relational repentance, recognizing that ultimately all of our sin is against a person. All of our sin is against God. 
And all of our sin needs to be dealt with vertically. Now, it may need to be dealt with horizontally as well, with other people, but it definitely needs to be dealt with vertically. Look at the difference between Peter and Judas. Judas experienced worldly regret that leads to death. Judas was sorry he blew it. Judas regretted but had no hope of forgiveness. And without hope, he became emotionally, psychologically, and mentally broken, and he took his life. Peter, on the other hand, sinned just as greatly. Peter denied he knew Christ. And we're told that Peter cursed himself. Think of someone swearing a blue streak like a sailor. Peter did that upon himself. He damned himself. He said, if, if I'm telling, if I'm lying that I don't know this guy, then may I be damned. He called down curses on himself. And yet, when the women appeared to the disciples after the resurrection and told Peter that Jesus had been raised from the dead, Peter sprints to the tomb. Now, that's not the act of a helpless, hopeless person. That's the sprint of somebody who, deep down, never lost hope. That Jesus was who he said he was, that he does love me, that he will forgive me, and not only will he forgive me, he'll heal me. Jesus is for me. I don't need to fear that Jesus is for everybody else, but he's not for me. Jesus is for me, and he's going to heal me progressively. It may take longer than I want, but he's going to work in me over time. As I repent increasingly, I will be increasingly healed. And then fourthly and finally, repent expectantly. And this is very quick because it's so objective. There are seven benefits of repentance in this passage. Now, don't confuse repentance and the fruit of repentance. God calls us to seek the grace of grief leading to repentance that leads to a fresh experience of salvation. God's Spirit produces the fruit. Just like the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of repentance God produces as we walk in repentance and faith. Look at verse 11. See what this godly grief has produced in you? Seven fruits. Earnestness, which is a quickness to acknowledge sin. By the way, people who are strong in grace are quicker to repent. People who are the strongest in grace are the quickest to repent. Because like the prodigal returning, we know we're not going to be met with a slap, but with a hug. And so therefore, we're quick to repent. The more we repent, there's a sense in which the more we experience the forgiving hugs of Christ. So, we're quick to repent when we understand and apply grace. Eagerness to clear yourselves. That means to be blameless. Now, that doesn't mean to be perfect. That, that means that we're walking in repentance and faith. We're broken people living broken lives in a broken world until Christ comes back. 
but we're experiencing healing by his grace. What indignation, that's a zeal to avoid bringing shame upon Christ or upon the church. What fear, that's a recognition of having an alarm within us that we are working when we sin at cross purposes with God. As a matter of fact, it's understanding that when we sin, we're actually cooperating with the devil. That's what alarm means, fear. What longing, that's a yearning for transformation. What zeal, that's a new energy and enthusiasm for Jesus. What punishment, that really has to do with church discipline. That, that we would yearn for the peace and purity of the local church. But not only does repentance bear fruit in our lives, it bears fruit in other people's lives. Look at verse 13. Therefore we are comforted. Our repentance comforts other people. Titus was comforted. Paul was comforted. Spouses, you want to comfort your spouse? Husbands, you want to comfort your wife? Be the chief repenter in the home. There is so much ridiculous nonsense out in the world of the church concerning what spiritual leadership is. You know what spiritual leadership is? It's out repenting your wives, husbands. That's spiritual leadership. It's not the king of the castle. I run my house. I make the decisions. Blah, blah, blah. That's ridiculous. Spiritual leadership is being the chief repenter in the home. Wives, you want to comfort your husbands? Then out-repent, they're out-repentance. Parents, you want to comfort your children? Be the chief repenter in the home. Children, you want to comfort your parents? Be the chief repenter in the home. You want to create intimacy or breed more repentance in your friend, in your peer group? Seek to lead your peer group in repentance. Repentance breeds repentance. Repentance builds a culture of transparency and safety where sin can actually be exposed and dealt with. I hear from people a lot. They'll say, Bob, you know, we know that... that Oak Mountain's a grace-driven church, but everywhere a church is grace-driven, it's a mess. There's sin everywhere. And I said, you're not being serious. They said, what do you mean? I said, there's sin everywhere in your church. It's all underground because people don't feel safe enough to talk about it. The reason why grace-centered churches appear to be such a mess is because all of us are a mess. But in a grace-centered church, people feel safe enough to talk about their sin. So it looks like it's a bigger mess than other churches. When in fact, it's just a mess that is above the surface. All the other churches are messes below the surface. Repentance leads to a safe, transformational, supernatural church, home, family, office. What do you need to be repenting of today? Over the past nine months, what have you been repenting over? See, one of the biggest problems over the past nine months is that most of us actually feel that we're right. No matter what the issue, whether it's politics, COVID, masks, whatever, we actually feel that we're the ones that are right. Well, remember, you're never in more danger of being most wrong than when you actually are most right. Because usually with that sense of rightness 
comes a self-righteousness and a judgmental, critical spirit. And nothing will shut down a heart like a critical, judgmental spirit. And nothing will open a heart more than repentance. And nothing will enable you to experience more of the wonder of the resurrection power of Christ than repentance. Repentance is not a dirty word. Repentance is an act of grace that leads to a deeper experience of life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this letter. We thank you for the Corinthians. Lord, they get a lot of, a lot of bad press, but Lord, where would we be without them? Because of what Paul wrote, because of what you inspired, and, and because, honestly, Lord, I'm so much like them in so many ways. Lord, thank you for Apostle Paul that got depressed. Thank you for a man who wrestled with fears and anxieties. So, Lord, again, as we started this morning, God, tenderize our hearts. Um, enable us to surrender. Lord, where you're exposing part of the iceberg, God, may we be grieved. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning that's never transferred their trust from themselves or their own efforts at being good to try to win your favor, God, may today be the day they transfer their trust to Jesus and His finished work. God, we don't know what you're doing in the world right now, but we do surely know that you're calling your children to deeper repentance. God, heal our land. Heal your church. Heal our homes. Heal our marriages. Heal our children. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.